Welcome to Cinema Joes, the podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin Mancini, and I am joined here by my two co-hosts. Uh, please say hello to Alex. How are you doing, Alex? Hi, Justin. How are you? I'm doing pretty well. Glad to glad to be with you again. And uh, we're also here with Noah. How are you doing, Noah? I'm doing good. Good. Well, we have a very special episode uh, for you today. We're going to be taking a little bit of a, a break from our typical sort of uh formula for our podcast and we're going to be talking about a film festival that our co-host noah is very familiar with has actually done work for and this is the nippon film festival in frankfurt germany um so we'll be getting into all of that um but before we do uh well, well i should say we'll, we'll be discussing uh the documentary sleeping village one of the uh films that is available at the virtual festival as this is unfortunately happening I'll, uh, uh, yeah, during I'll, this worldwide pandemic I'll, I'll fill in the details when we get to that part <laughs> sure uh but we'll also be going through animated shorts uh from female directors which should be a lot of fun uh and are, are quite different from one another so that should be fun to talk about as well but before we do that, we are going to start with our full disclosure segment. This is where we talk about uh, recent films, TV, uh, what have you, uh, stuff that we've been watching that's not the thing that we're about to talk about. So, uh, Alex, did you want to start us off? Sure. Uh, so the best film that I've seen since we talked last uh, was a film from 1985 called Safe. Uh, it was written and directed by Todd Haynes, and it stars Julianne Moore, uh, Xander Berkeley, who you might remember from uh, mid-90s classics like Heat and Apollo 13, and then also Peter Friedman, who has been a character actor for a long time, uh, that you probably knew his face, but not his name, uh, but he actually most notably has been in a supporting role in the ah. HBO series Succession, uh, which a lot of people have watched and which I love. So seeing him here was a, was a lot of fun and a very different sort of role. Uh, this movie is kind of like an underseen classic. Uh, the Village Voice actually named it its best film of the 90s, which is a real surprise given it's kind of like low profile. But I really kind of can't like, well, I can disagree because it's not my personal favorite film of the 90s. But it definitely, after watching it, broke into my top 25 list uh, and pretty high up there because I just absolutely loved this film. Do you guys know anything about it? Um, apart from the fact that it's a Todd Haynes film and stars Julianne Moore, no. I don't know a lot about it. But I've it's one of those films that seems like once I sit down and watch it, I'm going to love it. Yeah, well, as as a Todd Haynes film, it being a Todd Haynes film that stars Julianne Moore doesn't really narrow it down <laughs> very much because <laughs> she is kind of his muse mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. <laughs> but um, I just so I'm just going to start out by quoting what Criterion said about it because I did watch this on the Criterion channel. Unfortunately, it is not currently available to stream on the Criterion channel because it did expire on that service, uh, but you could still get it to rent and I really, really recommend it. This is how they wrote about it. They said, a profoundly unsettling work from the great American director Todd Haynes, safe functions on multiple levels as a prescient commentary on self-help culture, as a metaphor for the AIDS crisis, as a drama about class and social estrangement, and as a horror film about what you cannot see. And I have to say, I couldn't put it better myself, which is why I chose to read it like uh, here. Uh, 
and it really does. It really is this incredibly restrained uh, film that uses quiet and it uses subtle visual storytelling cues and just an incredible central performance where uh, by Julianne Moore, where she underplays everything so much uh, and has such an interior kind of performance that is just breathtaking to watch. And it does all this to, and it uses all of these things to just really tell this incredible story about this woman who has, you know, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like the typical 80s story of like suburban malaise, where she's this woman who has every she's upper middle class, has all of the types of possessions that she would need. She has a maid. She has everything that she could possibly ask for. And she seems profoundly depressed from the minute that you see her. Uh, she seems completely disconnected from everyone around her. And then her body starts to fail her and she becomes sick in a very mysterious way that no one can really understand. And in addition to it being a story about all of the things that the Criterion said, it also struck me upon watching that it was really a powerful story about uh, the way that women move through the world and how oftentimes they are so, their needs are so often not taken seriously. And the men in these in this film oftentimes with many good intentions just consistently gaslight julianne moore telling her that her physical condition is not real that her problem is is not happening even as she is uh having seizures and having nosebleeds and just really severe physical uh responses to things um she's consistently told by the men in her life that what's happening isn't happening uh and that i think was pretty powerful to see as well um and it just it's just such a rich text and especially to watch it during this mm. particular moment there was a lot of kind of like oh god don't watch that movie because you know it's about being sick mm. and about uh it's essentially what sh- what the movie posits is that uh Julianne Moore's character has a condition where she is hypersensitive to environmental chemicals uh, and so if she goes into a dry cleaner or if she is around a person with a lot of hairspray and cologne and things like that, her, her body will have a physical reaction to it that is that can be quite severe. Now, what the film also mm-hmm. does is walk this really tremendously interesting line of is this a real physical condition or is this a nervous condition that she has in her head where it's the physical condition, the physical symptoms are clearly happening. And by the, by the middle point of the film, they're incontroversible, but is that a physical manifestation of her anxiety or is it really an allergic response to the atmosphere? And it really kind of maintains both answers for the entirety of the film which is just really incredible because it ultimately at least for me watching made me feel like it it really doesn't matter because the solution is often the same it's her peace of mind that matters most and so if she's in a safe environment that she feels safe in her physical condition will be improved regardless of whether it's because the environment is actually safer or because she feels safer. And that was, that, that was very interesting because it presents a lot of challenging, uh, challenging questions. Like for instance, the Peter Friedman character who is sort of this kind of like health guru, self-help guru 
cult leader-esque figure in the in the film which is really interesting to think about if you've seen him on a show like succession where he plays such a a succulent to uh the <laughs> to the demanding uh patriarch of the show um <laughs> <laughs> we need to use succulent as a description but, uh, term more often. That but one has yeah, to come so back it, into fashion. It's just it, it's an open question <clears throat> if this man is helping these people or or hurting them and exploiting them for his own gains. And the movie gives you just enough without ever kind of like leaning hard into any particular point of view, uh, because it is so focused on just honoring the story of this woman, even if her story isn't entirely reasonable at times uh it that delicate Mm -hmm. balance of just like exploring all of those different ideas and being respectful and but being honest about this complicated question was just really really profoundly moving to me and just it was so intellectually stimulating and so emotionally stimulating and so challenging and it just and it's all done in such a minimalistic style as terms of the filmmaking that I just, I was just blown away by this film. It was so much better than I anticipated it to be. And I just really recommend everyone go out and see it if you mm-hmm. can, because it's just, it's really a forgotten classic as far as I'm concerned, because people do not talk about it enough given. You mentioned, you mentioned people saying like, oh, you shouldn't watch this movie now. I assume that's because oh well we have a pandemic going on. Yeah, well because they're right? like is that the the anxiety of like walking into a place and not knowing what mm-hmm. can what is invisible in the air that can harm you is like a is a is a, mm-hmm. is a core component to this film in a lot of ways. Um but but it also like mm-hmm. it really well not it just takes that. but it also takes seriously the fact that like if that is a reality for you then the anxiety of going into any space at any time is also like just as crippling as the concern of like the physical ailment that could attack you from the air. And I think there's a lot of overlap between that and like normal life in 2020, you know? Mm -hmm. So I think that that's definitely probably what they're talking about. Even beyond that, like you described the fact that especially at the beginning, people don't believe her. Like she keeps describing these symptoms to people and even doctors are like, no, that's not real. That's in your head. Or that's just like something else. Uh, because that women uh, and especially women and to a lesser extent men um, of color do experience a repeatedly proven phenomenon of doctors and professionals just not believing them uh, when they say they're in pain or I have this or, or that symptoms or downplaying it. Yes. Um, so that's and, like, like even even going back to the '90s, like this was becoming more and more documented. This this phenomenon of marginalized groups just not being believed uh, when they describe symptoms, and doctors either underestimating it or ignoring it entirely, or like willfully or, or passively uh, misdiagnosing it, right? Um, as something not as and serious. So this definitely. So it's 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 like it sounds like it sounds like it's got it sounds like it's a double whammy in that it, sense. well it is to a degree as i said that stuff is based more in sexism than in a racial component because obviously julianne moore is not a woman of color um mm-hmm. and this film is a very very white film yeah. almost yeah. by 
like design, it's extremely white because it is talking about the class privilege that both creates significant difficulties in a woman of means who is affluent. Uh, like it, it, it suffocates her in certain ways, but it also opens up a lot of areas of treatment and also of exploitation that wouldn't be available to someone mm-hmm. who is of other types of socioeconomic groups. Uh, but there is a long, long history of women not being taken seriously by medical providers who are mostly men. I mean, there's also just a long history of, uh, like medical trials being, uh, performed exclusively on male subjects mm. and then uh, the yeah. treatments being prescribed to women to oftentimes disastrous results. So the fact that yeah. – so, so there is that like intern- that, that sexism that is a, is a big part of it. But the racial component is almost uh, an inverse of what you're suggesting because of the fact that she is such a, such a relatively privileged mm. person in this society. Um, like that is – Todd Haynes kind of excels at that sort of like – uh, uh, that gilded cage sort of metaphor for a, an upper middle class mm-hmm. white woman. Like that's what almost all of his movies are about <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, and and it's definitely on point here as well. And I think that it's also just like I have to say, this is Julianne Moore in 1995. It's pretty much considered her breakout role. She really she had a lot of small parts before this. She had a she had a turn on a soap opera before this, but. This was like one of her real first serious leading performances in a film. And she's just incredible. It's one of her best performances that I've seen. And I've seen a million of her performances because I love her as an actress so much. And so to see her start and and oftentimes she kind of will go big and she'll go in certain ways. And here it's just so underplayed and so minimal. And yet she conveys so much and. Yeah, I just I really recommend everybody checking this film out. I think it would really resonate with people right now. And I think that it's just a great film. Yeah, I'm actually believe it. So I think I'm going to be checking this film out sooner rather than later because uh, the next picture show has paired this with a recent film called Swallow. Um, so that should be an interesting comparison. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So mm. I might be seeing this film. Like I said, sooner rather than later. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. I can't wait to hear what you think about it. Yeah, when you watch it. Also, sidebar, uh, Swallow is a really gross name for a movie. Just, like, putting that out there. <laughs> and that might be by design. <laughs> I, I imagine that was the point. <laughs> I imagine yes, that was well, deliberate. Uh, I'll let you know about that one as well <laughs> when I get to it. Um, <laughs> all right, so let's go to you next, Noah. What have you been watching lately? Well, last weekend, uh, I finally had the time to treat myself and revisit two um, older films that I genuinely love and had not seen in a while. And in both cases, it was just a treat to revisit them. Uh, so we had some family over to visit. And on Friday night, I convinced them to watch uh, Scott Pilgrim versus the World. And the next night, uh, I had access via uh, the the Nippon Connection website, which, um, for reasons I'll get to later, uh, was showing some past movies that had been screened at the festival. A Japanese animated movie called The Night is Short, Walk on Girl. And Scott Pilgrim has, uh, going to Scott Pilgrim first, that's been one of my favorite movies for quite a while. It was... I think just shy of the top 10 list of my top 10 for the decade. I think it came, I had it like 12 or 13, something like that. Um, but definitely in the top 15, it's easily my favorite Edgar Wright film. It's just, 
it it's so the editing and the use of sound and visuals to create this unique world and this just this incredibly vibrant sense of humor is just so fantastic in this movie. Uh, just every time I see it, it's just I'm just like, how like one, how did they think up this gag? And two, how did they like go about making it actually happen that way to the T? Um it's, it's it's just it's such a fun movie, uh, and I think beneath the surface it does have a lot to say about like modern relationships and like modern masculinity and like sort of finding, um, finding a way to like discover your true self. But but set in this world that is like this perfect encapsulation of like early twenty first century Western North American hipster culture. Uh, so it is very much a time capsule in that sense, but it's 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 a good kind of time capsule um, for me. Um, yeah, I'd be curious. You guys have both seen that movie, I've, right? Yes, I know. I, I've definitely seen it. I'd be curious how it aged, yeah. though, because like it's such a it was a film that was so current of that specific moment, and that moment has indef mm. has certainly passed. So I'm, I'd be very curious to see how it held up. It's I would I think anyone who like was at the right age or who was in who was like sort of in tune to those particular cultural moments. Cause it's not just like, like hipster culture, um, is a big part of it. Uh, like the sense of humor is very like, you know, early two thousands. Um, it's, it's loaded to the gills with like classic video game references. It's also very, I would argue that it's the best live action anime movie because especially in terms of the action, uh, the way action scenes are like edited and cut together and like characters are shown in perspective is very like draws very heavily from uh japanese anime so i think anyone who's into video games especially classic video games would love this movie anyone who's into like the comic book or the anime or manga aesthetic uh would would get a lot out of this movie and anyone who remembers who was old enough at that particular time period uh would would definitely like love the movie no matter when they end up watching it i can't imagine anyone like who was not attached to that culture being very befuddled by the movie. I can imagine, I don't imagine anyone who hates manga or comic book movies or anime would like it. <laughs> and anyone who like grew up later and is not at all familiar with that, uh, that, that, that time frame. I, I can imagine plenty of types of people who would not get much out of the movie. Let me put it well, that way. So how did uh, your uh, guests take the film oh they enjoyed it they had a lot of fun they they thought it was a really cute fun film so the the other movie that i got them to watch the next day was a, an, a japanese animated movie called night a short walk on girl which i'm blanking on the year it was three or four years ago i think when we or maybe maybe three years ago uh when it came out in japan and then was aired at the nippon connection festival over where we are and this is a movie it's such a strange film it's it, it takes the course over a single night um and there's a girl who like or a young woman who says i just i i want to feel like an adult so i'm just going to go out drinking and she like drinks like an ocean's worth of alcohol over the course of the film but it doesn't affect her she's like this happy-go-lucky girl who's just out to like go have a fun night on the town and meets all these wacky characters um so she's the first main character and the second main character is a guy who uh i forget like I, I i forget if the film establishes how exactly he knows her but he's head over heels from her and he's been trying to get her attention 
for the longest time and he decides like okay tonight is the night i'm gonna find a way to like get her attention then i'm gonna declare my love to her so that's the center of the movie is her like just going off and having these weird adventures and meeting these bizarre and colorful characters and him like tagging along and them getting pulled into all sorts of like insane hijinks and there's like there's a whole side plot about uh there being a god of used books who wants to take revenge on private collectors who soak up all the good used books at flea markets and uh, then sell them at uh, gouging prices. There's like a dictatorial, they're all, I know, I remember the connection. They're all students. All, most of the characters are students at the university. And there's like a festival of some sort going on at the same, at the same night. Uh, and there's like this dick, one character is the head of this like NSA style, like secret student intelligence agency that tries to monitor and track like every student in the university. <laughs> and they have like a talking monkey of course. Uh, who works in their office. And they're opposed, they're opposed by a guerrilla student theater group who launches guerrilla theater shows where they literally just pop out of nowhere, build up a stage, do like a five minute scene. And then they pack everything up and move out again before like uh the security forces can arrest them. Uh, and the student secret security force keeps arresting the actors. So they have like, they have like prison cells filled with actors in costume, but they keep finding new actors to plug in for the roles. <laughs> it's, it's like, it's the, it's the sort of film that is, it, it always teeters on the edge of its own insanity. Like it's, it's just one step shy of like losing the thread completely and just spinning into like complete chaos and being wholly like, unmanageable for the viewer but it never actually goes that far like it keeps going right up to the line but like it, it still manages to tie all of these bizarre elements together and have it make sense by the end and they like and have a lot about uh, about life and about the different phases of life because the the characters keep running into people who are of different ages who have different viewpoints on life and they talk about their viewpoints uh there's a running gag about time uh, for the young characters, their watches all run super, super slow. Um, and the older characters, like the older the characters are, the faster their watches spin. So like the older you are, the faster time hmm. seems to go. Uh, and that's a running theme throughout the movie, how time can speed up or slow down depending on your perspective. And like the whole movie takes place over the course of a single night. But by the end, it feels like you've watched this epic journey. And you're like, wait a sec. Like at one point, one character says like, Ah, I remember when you and I had our drinking competition to see who could, like, chug the most liquor. Ah, it was years and years ago. And the other character says, no, that was earlier tonight. Like, that was two hours ago. <laughs> it's it's an incredible, like, if that movie, so a, a couple of, like, older films were, were screened as, like, a special offer for the festival this year. If that one had been available globally, I would have insisted that you both watch it and that we do this episode on that movie. But it wasn't. I'm very disappointed about that, but one day I will find a way to get you guys to watch this with me. Um, it's such a good movie. It, it it should have been on my decades best list looking back, but I'd only seen it once at that point, and I was like, oh, maybe my memory is like, maybe maybe like nostalgia is making me think more highly of it. But having rewatched it, I was like, nope. I was my first impression of it was spot on. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I so I had heard of this because I remember when I was, as I typically do. Um, when, I, when I'm making my list of films to watch for a particular year, I will look at like 
films that are like generally pretty well acclaimed for a given year. And I remember seeing this film for at least for the United States, I want to say it came out 2018. So I remember considering it for my list and yeah, that yeah, sounds about and I right. think I just, I eventually cut it just because I had so much on that list. Um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think it was 2017 when yeah. I saw it and I had it like five or six. On that my looks top like when it came out in Japan and then some other countries. So, um, but yeah, just the way you're, the way yeah. you're talking about it, the two films that it, that it immediately jumped to mind for me are after hours and waking life. That's like just based on the very kind of like Waking surreal, life is a very good comparison. Um, you know, situations that this that our heroine yeah. seems to find herself in. It's not it's not rotoscoped, right. but it's not rotoscoped. But the animation is similar to Waking Life in that it has like there are all sorts of bizarre shapes and people like people's bodies will like shift and move in weird oh, okay. ways. It is like it, it's extremely cartoony yeah. in that sense, but it, it fits perfectly with the, within the tone of the movie. But yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe one day when I visit uh, you in Japan. And then on top. We'll, or Japan. Yes. In, in Japan. Well, perhaps. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> yes. My true home I, is in Japan. I'll sign up for that trip. That sounds yeah. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, so for what I've been watching, well, guys, I've, I've kind of come to the, I have like, there are two more films that I, plan to watch for my 2019 review um and i've been putting them off i think just because the subject matter seems really heavy and i've been watching a lot of heavier films especially a lot of really um thematically heavy uh documentaries recently um so i felt like i needed a little bit of a break from that and of course i decided to watch something that really wasn't necessarily a break, but was at least in terms of the um, content, but in terms of the form, I think was maybe kind of what I needed. I decided to watch a very famous comedy special that is on Netflix that I had not seen the entirety of before. I watched Nanette for the first time. Oh, <laughs> nice. You, you wanted a break from something. Yeah, exactly. Heavy, so I know, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. Did you not know? Perfect plan, I, Watson. Uh, so, I, I knew a little bit. I didn't know the full extent of it. Um, I had heard. Oh, shit gets I had so heard real. That, she, that a big part of it was about her subverting the typical conventions of stand-up comedy, and I was interested in that aspect. I didn't know about some of the more traumatic aspects of her life, which become a huge part of the special. Um, and really, I think in a way, go beyond even her own life, and really. Uh, make us question injustice in the world in all its forms, which was definitely not something I was expecting. And yeah, it was probably not as much of a break as I was <laughs> hoping it was going to be. Um, no, but, not really. Um, I think, have we <laughs> talked about this on the podcast before? No, I don't believe we have. Um, I've, I've definitely seen it, and Noah, you've seen it yeah. as well, and I think I could speak oh, yeah. for both of us in saying that we think that it's incredible. Well, um, I hate, yeah, I hate to be boring, but I did think it was incredible. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I that I was not expecting was one of like one of the subjects that that she gets into um, is the notion of the uh, separating the artist from or the art from the artist. Um, which I think is something for me that I've tend, I'll be honest, I think I've kind of tended to take that for granted. I watch a lot of, you know, I remember I did like a Hitchcock marathon. That is someone who has, 
who has an incredibly, um, you know, a pr incredibly profound influence on film. And for, in terms of his professional and personal life, did some more than just problematic things. You would say the things he did were sexual assault. And I was somehow able to watch a lot of his work and not oh, yeah. think about that. And really, and or yeah, like, and or literal torture. Yeah. Like if you read about oh, the yeah. history of the birds. Well, with, yes, exactly. I was, you know, watching like the films of Hitchcock and not really thinking about all these other things because frankly, it was my privilege to do so. I had distance from all those things. I, and really what I found was interesting about this special is Hannah Gadsby really questions whether someone who is problematic themselves, who's to say that problematic quality of that person can't also uh, come into the art? And I think that was something I really hadn't thought about before. And she does this, this, mm. um, she goes on at length because she was an art history major, as she reminds us throughout the show. And one of the, one of the good bits, um, she goes on at length about Picasso and about how the, the, the cubism and the way that he opened up the, the, uh, perspective of visual art maybe didn't allow for all perspectives and maybe that was tied into his incredible sexism and misogyny and that was something i really hadn't thought about and something maybe i had taken for granted and i think we have this way of of looking at art sometimes especially if it's incredibly meaningful to us as this kind of uh sacred artifact and I think really mm -hmm. one of the things uh, among many that this special does is it makes us aware that there is a production that goes into that art. There are people behind that art. There are all these things that go into. And if you think nothing problematic is going into that art, you are incredibly naive <laughs> and, um, yeah. you know, need yeah. to, I think that was something that really kind of, and I think for a special that does so many things well, just to kind of shock me out of that way of thinking was something mm. I found yeah. uh, I felt really grateful for really has changed how I look at art in a way. Mm. And uh, I didn't realize that was going to happen. And I, I feel fortunate for that. I know um, I was reading a yeah. little bit about the special and I found out that apparently when she was testing a lot of this material, the initials reactions to it were much more um, un like much more, palpably uncomfortable for the audiences and then apparently she had to mm. like tone a few things down or add a few more jokes and um i you know i felt i felt grateful for all the moments of discomfort and uh and tension oh yeah as she brings up constantly yeah. tension that she um perpetuates because it's a way to really uh make us think about our world and the injustices within it without kind of willingly dismissing it as I think yeah. maybe I did as someone who just was like, Oh, I can separate art from the artist. And ultimately I think audiences did respond to the uncomfortable parts about it. Yeah. I mean, I even, I even think within the special, like there are a couple of moments where you can sense the crowd being a little bit more uncomfortable. I mean, I think by the end they seem won over, but yeah, I don't know if they were really expecting the kind of set that, uh, that Hannah Gadsby was uh, going to give them. So mm. Yeah. yeah, much I mean, like you. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, now, I have to say, for my part, she, I, I mean, among many other contributions that that um, specials had to to my thinking and my thought process, 
it has permanently ruined Pablo Picasso for me because now, <laughs> literally any time I see or hear his name, the first thing I hear in my head is uh, Anna Gatsby's voice going, Cubism. Yeah, but also like, be, you can I'll hear her say his name and his and his name sounds so great with her accent. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think that <laughs> it's really everything that you say about that special is entirely uh, dead on. But that would make you think that it might be if you haven't seen it yet, it might make you think that it's a very intellectual kind of uh, special. And it certainly goes into that. But what struck me most is just how incredibly emotionally vulnerable she is throughout the show in a way that was just kind of jaw-dropping. And I think that mm. that emotional vulnerability is an important aspect to being to processing her later more intellectual arguments about art and and the effects that the, it has on people and, and the role in which the artist has in creating art. Because I think that when you see her as such a... She's giving you so much of herself and being so vulnerable and so open and, and being so honest about some of the most awful things that have happened to her in her life that when you then listen to someone who has given you so much of themselves and then listen to their critique about something that really bothers them in an emotional way and in an intellectual way, I feel like it primes you to be much more open to that argument than, uh, than, than you might otherwise be because that sort of like, how can you separate the art from the artist is a very kind of like established argument in culture that we've been having for decades. And I feel like mm. everybody kind of has their own camp on that and kind of like falls in line and is usually pretty resistant to arguments trying to convince them otherwise. And I think that the fact that she was willing to be so vulnerable and be so open really, at least for me, broke down that sort of resolve and and made me more interested and more willing to hear her out on her argument about what she was trying to say in terms of that topic. So I think that it's important to not separate those two aspects of the special because they work so well together mm. to create such a really powerful Oh, yeah, no, whole. just the... The, the entire special as a whole is an incredible, like, it in and of itself is a work of art, the way she structures it, uh, and has this flow, and, and just the, the way she transitions from each part to the next, from from the funny, lighthearted parts to the more deadly serious parts. Uh, like, just, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's a masterful example of how to structure, you know, an hour-long set of just one person talking. And Justin, I know that you're gonna groan when I say this, but if you if you liked this special and you liked her a lot, you really should consider watching the Australian television show Please Like Me, uh, which is uh, created yes, by Josh it is Thomas. So good. Uh, she comes on in season two and is on the show for the rest of the season uh, for the rest of the series, and uh, she it was also a writer on the show, and she definitely brings. That's a very similar sort of vibe and character to what she presents on stage in Annette. She brings that whole cloth into that television show in a way mm -hmm. that I had seen Annette by the time that mm -hmm. I watched uh, Please Like Me. And I was very surprised by just how much that character is her in a lot of ways. Yeah, my uh, timing so was if, very if you... fortuitous. Stella had gotten me into Please Like Me like maybe a month or two before Nanette came out. So when that hit, we were just fresh off of watching that show and we were like, wow, these are all like amazing, super talented people. And then, oh my God, she has a special coming out on Netflix. So we got to watch that. 
Yeah. So if you if you liked what you saw, you should really consider watching that show because it's a it's all on Hulu um, for American viewers. Uh, and yeah, you should you should really it's a great show in general. But if you're looking for more Hannah Gadsby, uh, that's definitely yes. a path to go down. She also has a new Netflix special out um, that just came I'm out recently. Yeah, I, I haven't seen to. it yet either because yeah. unlike Justin, um, I don't think that I could process uh, something super heavy in the moment. So I decided <laughs> to hold off because with her, you just don't know where things are going to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I honestly would love to see her live. That would that was certainly something that came across just watching this special. Um, really talking about anything. <laughs> so Yeah. Well, her command of the audience was just really it, it just like masterful in a way that was just captivating to watch all on its mm. own on like a meta level. Yeah. So to be a part of that would definitely be exciting. All right. Well, uh, so that's a that's a pretty good sampling of what we've been watching recently. Let's go on. <laughs> we'll be talking about the nippon film festival and i guess before we get into it uh noah did you since you are really familiar with this festival uh would you like to kind of give us a a general overview of the festival and and how and the kind of work that you've been doing for it yes so uh nippon connection and that's that's the full title because just nippon is another word for japan (laughs) uh so nippon connection is a japanese film festival that is based out of frankfurt on Main, it uh in germany and it is this year was the 20th year of the festival so it was launched in 2001 by a woman named Marion Hansen, uh, who still runs the festival, and it, a few other colleagues of hers. It, no, it was actually launched in 1999, but they had to take a, uh, two years off in between the first and the second one. I All right, there you go. Alex <laughs> knows my subject better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> so this was the twenty. At any rate, this was the twentieth year of the festival, um, and it started. I mean, it had it started off pretty humbly. Um, it was just sort of like this this event um, in one of the university campuses at the main university in Frankfurt. But it's really grown, especially over the past ten years, and is now the largest festival for uh, exclusively for Japanese films outside of Japan itself. So. Uh, on average, the festival screens somewhere around uh, 100 or more films from Japan of every stripe, documentaries, uh, animated films, fictional films, stuff that's mainstream with big name actors and financed by the major studios, all the way down to like debut films by independent artists who had to like uh, scrap together their their own their own funds to like produce the film. So uh and, and covering every range and every spectrum of genre and tone and style and aesthetic. So it's a really fun, it's a really fun event. And they all, and each year it's always mixed with a whole bunch of cultural programs, um, stuff like concerts, art exhibits, um, uh, Q and A's or discussions with filmmakers. A lot of Japanese actors and filmmakers are invited over each year for guests. Uh, and then there are a whole, there's a whole array of prizes. Some are, are awarded to the films by judges uh, and some are, are voted on by the audience members. So this year, obviously, uh, it was not possible to hold the festival like in its usual venues. Um, and I've been involved in the festival for about five years now. <clears throat> uh, 
Uh, that's another thing that's pretty special about the festival, aside from Marion herself uh, and a couple of other like major figures. Everyone else who who does the work on the festival, um, and like from organizing the schedule to doing guest uh, services to picking out the movies, um, to merchandise and everything else, are all volunteers. So I started off about five or six years ago doing uh, helping with the English translations for the website because everything is posted in uh, German, Japanese, and English. So I started off helping with English translations and then have slowly uh, transitioned into being part of the pre-selection team uh, that helps to watch a bunch of the movies in question beforehand and help the film, the main film team, uh, do the final selection for what films are actually asked or selected um, to be screened at the festival. Uh, and I've also been helping to organize the official festival blog for the past four years. Um, so that's like the, that's the condensed history of Nippon Connection as a film festival. Uh, obviously the, you, you know, much like, you know, much like all the other film festivals around the world, the traditional film festival where all these people from around the world gather in one place for a week or two uh, to watch a bunch of movies was not possible this year. So um, instead, there were some, there was a reduced cultural program that was mostly, uh, that was mostly offered online via live stream, like a few live stream concerts out of Japan. And then a, a somewhat smaller selection of films were available uh, to just be streamed over the website. So it was an all digital festival this year. And uh, once I realized that, because uh, I've been telling Alex and Justin about Nippon Connection for years and all the great movies I get to see every year. Um, but unless you're actually physically here, you know, you've until now it was not possible to see them. But some of the movies, not all of them, but a, a select number of the movies were available uh, to be streamed globally. Uh, and the rest were only available like within Germany or within Europe. Um, but a small number of films were available globally. So uh, we went through the schedule and picked uh, the main film, Sleeping Village, which is a documentary. And then the selection of uh, animated shorts that were all made and directed by women. And the reason for that is uh, every, every year the festival, there's some sort of thematic, um, some sort of main theme or topic uh, to the festival. And this year it was female futures in cinema. Uh, so looking at how women, where women currently stand within the Japanese film industry and what the trends are, how, how uh, women are trying to become more influential within the Japanese film industry. Because, I mean, Japan, you know, the same as in every other major film industry in the world, there are a lot of really amazing, important female filmmakers that have uh, both directors and actors uh, and screenwriters and producers and, and, and um, throughout the years. But they're still very, very underrepresented uh, within the the decision making halls of the film industry. The same as in the United States, the same as in Europe, um, and as in everywhere else. So that's why we decided to look at the female directed animated shorts, which were all shown together. Um, and there were twelve shorts, and the total total runtime I think was like an hour twenty minutes, something like that, for all the shorts combined. <clears throat> Okay, and so uh, unfortunately, I was unable to watch the material for today's episode. So as a result, I was a dumb I'm dumb. Gonna... I did not remind Alex <laughs> early enough. So I'm going to uh, to steal the reins of hosting duties away from Justin for the remainder of the show, uh, so that way I can kind of moderate Justin this is now discussion. Now lying on the floor in a pool of his own blood. <laughs> 
It is very brutal. <laughs> yes, but his uh, vocal cords are intact, so he can still perform. Um, but <laughs> he's dead, but he can still talk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so we're going to start out by talking about these short films. Uh, they were directed by four different women uh, out of the twelve. Uh, films all all 12 were directed by four different women um, and we're just going to take it one filmmaker at a time the films kind of range from the earliest film came out in 2011 uh, and the most recent film came out last year so that's kind of like it's a decade of short films directed by uh, Japanese uh, female animator directors so that's kind a of number what we're of these films a, n- a number of these films had previously screened at Nippon uh, connection before so th- these are all th- these are all filmmakers that like we that the festival has a working relationship with. Yes, and they have and many of them have won uh, a variety of awards for achievement and uh, jury selection in other areas uh, for other festivals over the years. So these are these are really acclaimed properties that I'm excited to hear what you guys thought about. Uh, we're going to start out with the filmmaker uh, Mako uh, Sukakara. I believe. Um, and she directed three films, uh, three, th- three short films. Uh, they were 2011's Deep Seas Rainbow, 2013's While the Crow Weeps, and 2019's Wild Pear. So of those three, Justin, I just wanted to get your sense of which one do you think was the strongest film, which was the one that jumped out at you the most spoke to you the most directly um of the three i would say probably the one that that i like the best just because it feels the most complete to me is wild pear um this almost to me feels like a like a a child storybook come to life it revolves around these two crab characters like almost like a a family of Mm. crabs who are constantly looking up at the what they don't really understand is the surface of the water uh, where all these weird things seem to take place, like fish, fish are, are uh, you know, uh, are grabbed out of the water by birds, and then the uh, crab parent has to explain uh, where the fish went, and I believe describes it as going to the scary place. Um, at another point, there is a pair, the pair of the title that sort of rests on the surface, but um, they are sort of waiting to sink um, because of the dangers inherent with the surface of the water. Um, it's very sort of innocent, and there's a there's definitely a playfulness to um, the two younger crabs and their sort of interactions with one another. You can tell they're siblings. They have these, like, kind of petty competitions between one another. Um, I just... And I do like the other two here. I just felt like... This one felt like the most complete kind of story to me it has more of an arc i feel like the other two are more like in some way more like poetry and this one's maybe more like a story so maybe that's just something i latched on to more but that was definitely mm. the one that that uh, spoke to me the most and no what can you tell us about the about the style of this artist i mean just within i mean all i know of this artist are these three movies so they um i they look like it, it looks like it's hand-drawn uh, and it is, I think Justin's description of like a storybook come to life is very much that that fits for all three movies. The aesthetic um, is very like it looks hand drawn. It looks like it looks like it's been colored in with like crayons or colored pencil um, or maybe Water, like, yeah, or, like that was my thought, painted yeah. with like watercolors. So like very the, the colors are very light. It like it looks like even the the, the solid things in all three of the movies look like you can almost see like brush strokes in them. 
uh, where the color was like filled in. Um, and the lines, so the, and the, like the lines are much more softer. Um, yeah. Like, I think, I, I think that's the best way to describe it. Yeah. Would you agree with Justin in terms of what your favorite of her works were? My favorite was the first one, Deep Sea's Rainbow. Uh, and it, and really just because it is, it, it is visual poetry. Uh, it's basically, it, it's the sequence where like you, you see the ocean and the setting sun and a whale comes out of, of the water and almost seems to like swallow the sun and then dives down to the deepest part of the ocean where they're like all these creatures and then like gives the sun to a giant squid. That's like bioluminescent. Yeah. And like the, there's all sorts of scenery in here of the deep ocean as like looking like a, a universe filled with stars and galaxies um, either reflecting it from the sky above or like the, the giant squid itself, like the, the water behind it is like all black, but then the squid is like this deep blue with patterns of like stars and galaxies and nebulae clouds um, on the, the surface of the squid. And it's really, really stunning. Um, yeah. It's not like, it doesn't have like a clear story. You can interpret it. I think any number of ways it's really it just it's 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 an experience of sound and images um there's well, no dialogue I, obviously i want to make a point of correction i did actually get the dates wrong on on i flipped the dates on the on the first and last film so it, it does turn out that wild pair was her first film in 2011 and deep seas rainbow is her most recent film in 2019 so i do think that it's interesting oh, okay. that she's kind of progressing from a more standard narrative context to a much more abstract yeah. and sensory sort of experience in her work. Mm. That's an interesting trajectory for her as an animated filmmaker. Yeah. With regard to Deep Sea's Rainbow, I just the, the thing I kept thinking about, and I don't know if either of you are familiar with uh, uh, with this particular, are either of you familiar with um, the art of, I believe it's William Schimmel? No, it's not ringing a bell. Okay, so the reason I'm familiar with the work of Mr. Schimmel is because his work seemed to be uh, featured on many a uh, school binder or notebook when I was <laughs> in school. Um, hmm. And these were basically works of art that combined wildlife with the cosmos so you'd actually have whales swimming through space mm, basically okay. so i couldn't help but think of that watching this and the other thing i couldn't I, and just to get back to elementary school um binder and notebook designs is lisa frank because there's so much rainbow stuff going on here with that bioluminescence <laughs> and and some of those creatures that we encounter there i do like how I like mm, how the mm. film sets this up as this confrontation between this sperm whale and this squid, which, of course, I think anyone who has been to, you know, the Museum of Natural History, that's like one of the things that, you you know, one of the sort of iconic images, one of the things that just watching that battle between these two, um, you know, undersea titans, basically. Um, and this film kind of subverts that by the whale uh, transferring that ball of lights, which, you know, whatever it might represent to the squid, which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Like, is it fighting? Is the squid stealing it? Is the whale feeding the squid? There's there. It, it's not yeah. quite clear. It's just it's this it's this way of sort of setting up what you assume is going to be this violent confrontation that ends up seemingly um, being this kind of either transfer of power or 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 gift uh, gifting even, so it's just mm. really fascinating by that uh, standard. Yeah. 
it sounds like yeah. an unforgettable image. So it definitely seems like maybe not the strongest film, but the most <laughs> iconic, possibly. <laughs> um, so moving on to another filmmaker called Yoko Yuki, uh, she had another. She had three films as well in in the in the program. Uh, they were 2016's 100% Electrical, 2018's A Snowflake Into the Night, and 2019's Shimizu Bono Shara Bonbon. I feel like I am uh, I'm reading off the best animated feature uh, short films at the Oscars. Uh, but uh, yeah, so of those three... Shimizu Bono basically felt like a music video. Yeah? Is that the one that jumped out to you the most? No, the no? one that jumped out to me the most was A Snowflake in the Night, which has like this paper cutout stop motion style where it's like, it's very, or it, it looks very just two dimensional. Uh, and like little bits of paper representing um, either paper or clay or something like that, um, representing the main character, uh, just sort of reforms. And the, the basic story is a snowflake falls down to the ground, and then the snowflake is conscious and transforms itself into all different types of objects and life forms. Uh, often on a whim, like it sees a frog and he thinks, oh, it might be cool to be a frog. And then it turns into a frog. And then the frog sees a bird and says, oh, I'd like to fly. And then he turns into a bird. Um, and it gets all the, like it, it goes through this whole cycle of transforming through just, I, I didn't even, I didn't even try to count like the number of transformations that take place until the end where like he's back in the sky as like air or a cloud or something and then comes together again with other snowflakes and transforms back to being a snowflake and then falls down onto uh, a mountaintop in uh, in a big winter snow. And that's the final image. Uh, the, the final images of like this, this massive snow colored mountain um, set against the nighttime. Um, so it was that one I found the most interesting, partly because I really like that final image and of this, I, I like the idea of this this almost whimsical uh, journey of transformation where this one being uh, or this one like spirit or or consciousness uh, just on a whim goes through all these different facets of life and existence and like tries them out and then like keeps changing as a result. Yeah, that was that was also my favorite um, of the three, though I did find them really I've found them all quite unique, um, but this one, yeah, seemed to be tapping into this kind of folklore. Um, it, well, I guess I would almost describe it as like telling a bedtime story. Um, it definitely had that quality to me, and and like you said, yeah, like the the way that um, these transformations happen, yeah. like to me, it was almost like someone doing yeah. like arts and crafts or something. Like a lot of these images seem like they're almost made on construction paper or something like that. There's a real tactile quality to. Um, I would say to, to, to her, her work in general, but through this short mm -hmm. in particular. Um, but to, to me, it was almost like a, a living a life and um, returning back into being snow. I just, there's this sort of the way of like mm -hmm. looking back on your life and remembering, you know, becoming what you once were to a certain extent. Um, I think there, there, that, that, really was was something that i found really interesting and uh yeah this one just had a kind of propulsiveness to it which actually i think you can see in especially mm. in in shimizu bono 
um, which is just like perpetual motion, essentially. I almost, how did I, <laughs> I described it that one in my notes as um, psychedelic Dr. Seuss. Oh yeah, no, that's, that was my <laughs> note. It feels like a psychedelic my, music video. Yeah, but, but Snowflake Into the Night, I think takes that propulsive quality and really adds this extra layer to it with the kind of storytelling aspect with this, this notion mm. of transformation. Uh, and like you said, no, I think that's right. That's the right term, on a whim. Like really it is about seeing whatever the next thing is saying, I'm going to become that now. Um, and I think that's the way we can sometimes live our lives, yeah. right? I mean, we say like, oh, let's try this thing. Okay, I'm, I'm tired of this thing. Let me try this other thing. That looks new. Um, so, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm that, one, that one I really liked. I, I, do, um, I just... Wait, hold on. Well. I, do, I do just want to ask, Justin, what are your thoughts on 100% electrical? You know, that's what I probably... Uh, and this will be a theme with, especially with the the next two uh, animator animation directors we're about to discuss. Is mm. it's one where I kind of wish I had seen it more than once because there's just so much going on. <laughs> um, but uh, I don't know. That was I I was interested yeah. in the different forms that she was experimenting with. Um, these almost like three D dioramas that I thought were interesting, and it takes the yeah. it, it takes the form of this conversation between these I think two strangers that have just met, uh, and one describing her her the trip to Thailand, um, and we us seeing that through these kind of weird like three D dioramas of photographs and that sort of thing. Um, I I found it more interesting I guess on a form level just because it was combining all these different styles yeah I, I got to the point where i was just like okay this is an interesting style but we're just watching someone's vacation videos like did this person just want to <laughs> show off their vacation videos from thailand i mean i love i love thailand but i don't know listen it can be hard to convince people to watch <laughs> yes. those things so anything you got to do right the hustle's part of the game man <laughs> moving on to our next filmmaker uh we have lisa fukaya uh, who brought us two short films, uh, 2016's Rabbit Tales and 2019's Mimi. Uh, so I'm curious, Noah, do you think that these two films were of equal quality, or did you really see the difference between the three years that had passed between mm. uh, Rabbit Tales and Mimi? I, they're, they're both very different, like in, in terms of style and in terms of content as well. Um I preferred Mimi more. Mimi seemed seemed like a more relatable um, story about, you know, a young girl. Possibly, like it seems to be a girl hitting puberty, um, and therefore undergoing physical changes and is dealing with bullying, uh, and has to be, and is sort of like put, fighting against the isolation that that brings. I found that very relatable and very um, appropriate for, uh, you know, for something like it, like a short movie to tackle. Um, I wasn't sure what to make of Rabbit Tales. It's maybe a oh, commentary gosh. on the meat industry. Um, that's the, that's the closest I got to like, uh, kind of grasping what the, uh, what the film was trying to get at, or it's just a movie about, or the person just like this woman just likes <laughs> making movies about very strange young girls. <laughs> Justin, how did you think these two films spoke to each other? Well, so I would say to me, Rabbit Tales is a little bit more of a straightforward. Um, I don't. I mean, I guess sort of you know very short narrative. Mimi seems a lot more interested in ideas. Um, uh, so I guess in that way, I can see sort of a, a level of sophistication that that kind of is developing. Um, 
at the same time, I actually I really liked Rabbit Tales. Um, maybe maybe its simplicity was was part of its charm for me, um, in which this young girl is basically just doing incredibly whimsical things with this this young you know with this this little <laughs> bunny and you know just like it's just like um, undeniably cute and adorable. And basically, at a certain point, you see that this is not the first bunny that she's done things with. There are like there are cages full of them and there are also graves devoted to i assume various bunnies that she yeah. has had seemingly the same kinds of adventures with um i don't know if i could tell you like what that's meant to represent but i could tell you it it certainly i think it's pretty clear that at least within the text of the movie she eats the rabbits okay interesting i didn't think about that why would there be graves to them then that's where i started thinking about okay is this a commentary on the meat industry I mean, <laughs> I also couldn't help movie? but think of us with all the caged rabbits, um, but that's another that's another issue. Um, oh God! But yeah, but <laughs> this does predate us. Yes, yes. Um, so, so, but yeah, I I did I liked Rabbit Tales a lot. I liked how it also syncs um, musical cues with uh, various scene transitions within the short, which I found really interesting. It establishes even though you're seeing all this kind of like seemingly spontaneous behavior, it actually clues you in that this might be more of a routine or a regimen. Um, so there's, I don't know, there's yeah. something like vaguely sinister going on here, which I found interesting. You don't really realize until toward the end of the short. Um, with regard to Mimi, I just thought it was a really fascinating way to, to explore puberty, growing up, um, social like peer pressure. The fact that all the other girls look very similar to our main character, but have this like pleated hair, which by itself is not really that um, disturbing. But the fact that every single girl has the exact same hairstyle makes it that much more disturbing. Um, so, and you mm, understand yeah. the pressure that she's under and, and really the, the animation um, at one point, like there's a point where almost like in this weird dream sequence, faces of these other girls seem to be merging into hers. So almost <laughs> adds this level of like animated body horror to an art, to a, to a film that's already concerned mm. with, um, various bodily changes, uh, you know, which should be pretty obvious from this red dot that keeps recurring within it. Um, I I really loved, I would say uh, of the four directors, Lisa Fukai was probably my favorite. She's the one I would most like to see make a feature film. Um, oh, that said, I think for both of these hmm. shorts, she really uses that short form to its advantage um, in both these cases. I, that was actually going to be a question that I had when we finished talking about all oh, of them. So okay. let's hold on to that for just a second. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Don't ruin it, Justin. No God. <laughs> no, that's fine. Um, so we're gonna we're gonna talk about our last filmmaker now. Uh, this is the only filmmaker who had four uh, films included in the program. Uh, her name is Serena uh, Nihai, I believe. Um, and again, I apologize if I've mispronounced any of these names. Uh, my Japanese is not where it should be. Uh, but the films were... And I'm not correcting Alex, because my Japanese is only slightly better than Alex's is. Well, yeah, and your English <laughs> is kind of spotty sometimes, so... <laughs> uh, um, oh, <laughs> shots fired. <laughs> so we're going to talk about 2012's uh, Love-Hate Relationship, 2013's Trifling Habits, 2014's Small People with Hats, and 2017's Rabbit's Blood. Now, I have to say, just by the titles alone, I'm most 
most interested in small people with hats. Does that live up to its name? Well, okay, hold on. So I, I want to start. Okay. So the, the order the order that these films were shown uh, within the, like, the chronology within, because all the shorts were, like, grouped together in one mm-hmm. video file. So it starts off with Rabbit's Blood, then Small People with Hats, then Trifling Habits, and then Love-Hate Relationship is uh, the conclusion. Um, ah, so they went in reverse chronological order. Yes. So here are my notes, starting with Rabbit's Blood. Fuck! I have no fucking clue. Um, I give up. Next film, Small People with Hats. Short People Genocide? Three question marks. Fuck a mighty. That's the last thing I was able to write. Does that answer your question, Alex? Uh, sounds like it lived up to my expectations. Uh, <laughs> You're expecting genocide? Well, I was expecting something exciting. Uh, so, Justin, uh, since Noah was rendered speechless by this uh, animator, what did you think about their work? Um, so, I'll, I'll be. So, I, I said. So, this director, I would say, is probably the work that's stuck in my mind the most, which is saying something um it is very distinct yeah and and i mentioned it before but this was a case where i really would have liked to have uh two things i would have liked to have had the opportunity to watch some of these maybe more than once um to me it's like kind of it's like reading a poem once like i think that first time is kind of to get your bearings and kind of develop expectations for what that particular work of art entails and then a second or third reading or viewing in this case is kind of designed to maybe delve into more of that meaning um and i was trying to kind of do both on the fly here uh, so I want to say that, but also I, th- I think this would have benefited probably from like uh, conversation immediately following because there's a lot going on here, um, particularly with rabbit's blood and small people with hats, which I actually think are very good companion pieces in the sense that both introduce these uh, seemingly like very strict authoritarian societies where there is some kind of underclass, which also is apparently some kind of underground movement that one of our characters, maybe our protagonist in each case is sort of discovering for the first time. And, uh, and if not necessarily becoming allegiant with that underclass, certainly developing more of an understanding in the case of small people with hats, it is indeed small people with hats who all look the same. They all have this (laughs) weird like hairstyle and it's a bowl cut. Yeah, it's a it's, coconut head from uh, Ned's Declassified. Um, oh, intre- wow! That was not a reference I was expecting. Um, yes, the short <laughs> film consists of coconut head from Ned's Declassified being murdered over and over and over but again. What's really interesting about this is that all this is rendered. The art style is rendered in this like very sort of simplistic, um, almost like defiantly unrealistic style um oh yeah it's very like it's it's almost it's like an it's like a few steps above stick figures in terms of like it's very simple yes and they are these shorts are punctuated by incredibly brief but decidedly final uh uh acts of violence um rabbit's blood seems to involve these these rabbits who are some kind of underclass that are uh poke their head out every so often and like basically uh conduct these uh guerrilla missions and then will find like they'll just like like 
find a part in the wall to like to make their escape it's 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 very hard to describe but uh there's i think this film and, Small <laughs> and they're People all Pets. missing an ear all the rabbits have all oh, the yes. rabbits have one ear like chopped off yes there's, oh my so there's a lot going on here um i can't and but i do think the fact that it's not just about um introducing these two different sides the fact that she does give us like in both cases some kind of um some kind of figure who seems to be a part of that um seems to be sort of between these two worlds and is sort of discovering more of this underclass um I think is meant to clue us in that uh, something sinister is going on here um, and that mm. some, something really wrong is happening and um, and recognizing that there there is a possible choice, especially in the case of small people with hats uh, are sort of a de facto protagonist in that film uh, does make a certain choice at a certain point um that is uh you know runs counter to seemingly the the order that is established the the authoritarian order that's established in that film um and it's it's quite disturbing <laughs> um but it yeah it, i don't know these like i said there's a lot going on in these films uh i think they're worth watching i probably would have preferred to watch them again because i was not prepared for the level of violence and uh commentary <laughs> on um hegemony <laughs> that is inherent in these films yeah like given the simplicity of the style you would not expect like there to be so much blood in certain moments yeah was the style anything like don Hirschfeld? it seems a little bit similar by the way you're describing it so it's not quite stick figures um it's it's almost like weirdly enough and this is, should be a a, a a commentary on my uh artistic skills but it's almost like something that i would that i feel like i could draw as a incredibly as an incredibly bad artist um <laughs> but the consistency of it as I someone think who is, cannot draw i could do this <laughs> like it's it's a little bit more sophisticated than stick figures but the proportions are kind of all out of whack like you could see like a younger person who had just started drawing kind of doing these kinds of drawing but there is a consistency to it which i think is part of its power um and i do think also the transitions and um the way that all these figures are shimmering even when nothing ostensibly is happening creates this level of anxiety <laughs> um so that even in moments of stillness there's still this tension um so yeah, yeah there's a, so i actually think i think the art is deceptively simple if that makes any sense there's a lot going on with it yeah interesting well and the faces look the faces just look completely dead yeah in, in all the characters in every one of the films <laughs> And sometimes that belies a particularly violent act that they've just witnessed. That seems like a very powerful contrast. Yeah. And this is this is also why I feel like, like I said, I, I would have loved to have seen some of these a second time. I, I think I got the sense watching them that they were probably better 
um, than I was giving them in the moment of watching them. So there's a lot to unpack. Okay. Yeah. So now we know that Lisa Fakaya is uh, Justin's favorite artist of the four that we've discussed. Uh, Noah, how about you? Which is the one who, if you had to recommend their complete work to someone who is just interested in it, they listen to our conversation, they're not quite sure where to go to look for more information about, uh, try to find some of these shorts online, which artist would you recommend? I'd go with the first one. So that would be uh, Makiku Sukakara. That trio of films were the ones that um, impressed me the most. And they're also like their their style is very much in the vein, a vein of animation that I really like. Um, so that was my personal favorite. That's the one I'd recommend the most. Although I did really like Mimi. And Justin, is there one one short out of all of these shorts that you would tell people to seek out? Uh, it would probably be Mimi. Um Though I would, if if I knew them as someone who was into uh, maybe more disturbing kind of stuff, then I probably would recommend uh, Rabbit's Blood and Small People with Hats. <laughs> I think there are certain okay. people we both know that would like those two movies. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm, I think we all know at least one person who wants to watch Dead-Eyed Rabbits murder things. <laughs> Okay, so now we're going to talk about our feature film for the episode. Uh, this is a documentary uh, directed by uh, Rika Kamada, who uh, has been directing fil- documentaries since 2015, and her partner, uh, Junichi Sato, who has been directing documentaries since 2005. Uh, this film is called Sleeping Village, um, and its official synopsis is... In 1961, a spectacular criminal case shocks Japan at what became known as the Napiri, uh, oh, sorry, Nabari poison wine incident. Mm. Five people lose their lives at a village social gathering. One of the attendants, Masuro Okanishi, is made out as the main suspect. Rumor has it that he wanted to kill his wife and his lover in order to end his extramarital affair. After being questioned by the police for days, he signs a confession, only to withdraw it soon afterwards. Nonetheless, he is sentenced to death, and all pleas for his retrial are denied. So... That is a very interesting story. Uh, seems very uh, seems a bit heavy. Obviously, in America right now, and as around the world, we are facing a kind of a global uprising against the criminal justice system, as it is uh, heavily flawed and weighted against certain minority groups, and just not the best purveyor of justice out there, unfortunately, for a variety of reasons. Uh, so I think that was one of the main reasons why we chose this documentary as our feature film, just because it feels like it's of the moment. I wanted to ask you both, starting with you, Justin, how much did it feel of the moment? So I couldn't help but think um, one of the things that this film gets into, and it's very much a straight, in some ways, a very straightforward investigation. In other ways, I I think it um, explores some of the personalities of the people involved. But I would say one thing that I kept coming back to is um, the sense of closure that we gain by um, supposedly convicting of convicting someone of a crime. Um, and I guess like with this film, 
there's this sense of even though there's all this evidence that seems to point counter to this particular man as the culprit of this horrific crime, that there's one thing that I think we all everybody can agree on is that the crime itself, um, you know, is is a tragedy and is and you know whoever there definitely should be justice um, visited upon the culprit. But the man who is accused of being the culprit seems to. Uh, seems to be someone who is actually innocent when there's actually any investigation applied. Um, but his being convicted seems to, and I use that term deliberately, seems to bring about a sense of closure to the villagers, to the community, and I would say to uh, the government and the country as a whole. But really, that sense of closure, I think in a way, is really perpetuating the injustice that's inherent in this, in the legal system, in the law enforcement. And I guess, I don't know, when I, when I think about it, our current situation where we're seeing, still to this day, seeing cases where people are wrongfully convicted um, and how supposedly justice is being achieved, I, I think there is, I think there is some, some echo there of, mm. are we achieving, like, is it is the real goal here to achieve justice or is it to give us a false sense of closure? And if it's the latter, is that really a sense of closure or is that just the kind of lie that we tell ourselves to be able to sleep at night? Basically, two main um, thrusts that the movie kind of highlights in this. The one is how a justice system itself, uh, completely separate from the specifics of an incident and where it happens and who it affects, um, any criminal justice system, uh, and in the case of this film, it's about the fact that in Japan, like the signed confession, even if everything else, even if all the other available evidence uh, points to that confession being bullshit, um, the, the, the Japanese system is in the Japanese system, the signed confession is like the word of God. And if there's a signed confession, like 90% of Japanese judges will be like, well, that's it. There's a signed confession. Case closed. Um, and that's, that, that doesn't necessarily translate one-to-one -to, -one to every criminal justice system around the world, but the, but the, the main, the main idea is that any criminal justice system can over time kind of like fossilize around very specific types or aspects of an investigation and say, okay, this is what is important and what matters to the detriment or to the ignorance of other types of evidence and other types of investigations that could end up being more accurate. So taking one aspect of a case and saying, if this is there, then that means that we have to decide this and just kind of brushing everything else to the side. Um, Cause even though he did withdraw his uh, confession and said he, he made it under duress basically because the, the, the police were like, the police investigators were like, well, we got to get someone to confess. Like, we don't have any leads. We we just we got to have we got to produce something. Um, even though he withdrew it and what little physical evidence is still available, like points to his confession being nonsense. All of the attempts to appeal afterwards are dismissed with, well, he confessed and that's it. Yeah. Like you can take all this work you put in for the past several decades Toss in the trash, he confessed. That's it. So is there no cultural awareness of the fact that confessions can be coerced? And, well, I mean, it's something... I, I think that's pretty global. Like, anyone is... I, I think it's. I think that's pretty universal that if, you know, if someone says, I did it, 
I think any of us has an instinct to want to latch onto that and say, oh, well, that's it, you know? Even, well, even in the this... last 30 years or so in the American system, the coerced confessions have been grounds for retrials and uh, acquittals on appeal in a number of high profile cases. Yeah, I mean, this was also a case where there's no evidence like there's no no one came out and said, oh, I literally pointed my gun to his head and said, you're going to sign this now. Um so there was no th- well that's also why we like require uh like in- interrogations to be filmed and confessions to be filmed now so that way yeah you can at least try to track how the the means by which they're being given and oftentimes that process is even abused and there has been a lot of work by criminal justice advocates to try to to try to just yeah. completely decenter that sort of thing um in the same way that now like i feel like that was that like m- Growing the cultural understanding mm. that a confession can be coerced was like a very prominent movement of I feel like the last like like twenty five to thirty years of uh, criminal justice advocates yeah. and now it has sh- and now that focus has also moved on to really try to deconstruct the idea of an eyewitness testimony being sacrosanct because in our system that was oftentimes considered the most important thing and there's been a lot of really important work done to show how elusive memory is and how uh, amenable it is to persuasion and and why eyewitness testimony is not as as useful as it should be yeah, I mean, it, it. this seems to have been a case where there was no, like, no particular person or group of people explicitly threatened or, like, forced him. Or at least there's no evidence of that. It just seemed that, like, in, in general, there was all this pressure to produce some sort of result. Yeah, well, a coerced, a coerced confession is not just, I'm pointing my gun at your head and making you confess. It's also <laughs> yeah, just yeah. spending 16, 18 hours in an interrogation room with someone until they finally give up because they are exhausted and they don't even know what right. their name is anymore. So they will, yeah. conf- they'll sign anything so they can just end the and interrogation. I, I, yeah. You know, that is- I wanted to bring up, there's a quote from that they use in the documentary from uh, a judge who refused to open the case um, in the many years that I couldn't believe how long this guy was on death row. Uh, for one thing, that's that's a whole other thing which we can get into. Um, but the the judge who refused to reopen the case said it was quote hardly believable that a man would lie with his life on the line in explaining why like yeah b- in in, in um, because this was a man who took back his or attempted to take back his confession. But when you actually hear like when you hear from um, Okanishi himself and you hear about. Like uh, some of the things that you were talking about, uh, Alex, with exhaustion, and with, he was watched twenty four seven, including any time he went to the bathroom. Um, oh yeah, I'd, f- I'd forgotten that detail. But also, yeah. he talks about his. He actually talks about um, uh, not so much his children being threatened, but by the fact that um, if he did like that, his children were actually going to be ostracized by this village if he didn't do so like that that was currently happening and so there was this there was this constant pressure from all sides on him to a point where you're like you could if if the document doesn't necessarily prove you could certainly see how someone would uh write this false confession just to make it stop Mm. um so yeah so i have a i have another question um there's there's been a huge 
like boom in the true crime documentary mm. fields, both in terms of true crime documentary series and podcasts and films, um, of course. And I- I'm curious how this fits into that larger landscape, like in your opinion, like, do you think well, that this, this conforms not... to the genre in a lot of ways or is it an this... exceptional example of it or? This is not an American true crime documentary. I mean, this is not this is not Tiger King. This is not casting John Bonet. This is not like sensationalist in any way. Uh, and the film makes no the film makes no effort to claim that oh we've discovered the true story. Uh, like there are there are hints that the film is able to to come up with about other possible explanations for who might have done this and how. Um. But there's never anyone sitting down and saying, well, obviously, this is what really happened. And therefore, we have to go back to the judge and convince them, you know. Uh, so it's not it's much more. The, the, the filmmaking is much more distant in that sense. It's not yeah. trying to like like the filmmaker. This is also no this is not like the act of killing or the look mm. of silence, you know. Uh, like the filmmakers are not in like inserting themselves in amongst the the people here, um, so it's 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 a very low key film in that sense. Justin, what do you think about that? Um, so you know, I was I was thinking about that because I, I I'm I'm so aware of true crime being like a big thing within um honestly within especially within streaming services. I noticed. Well, I guess also podcasts. For being honest, um, but yeah, this. I'm not someone who has really gravitated toward that that particular genre. Um, I, I definitely get the sense this seems a lot less sensationalist than I would imagine uh, true crime documentaries uh, have the potential to be. Um, it's it's like you said, no, it's definitely low key. I was kind of surprised how low key it was. Um, it's almost like it's almost dry <laughs> at a lot of points. And, uh, but at the same time, I think that sort of dryness is a way of just kind of letting the facts speak for themselves, letting people speak for themselves. Um, Mm. you know, I I think in in some ways the film to me is more concerned and I don't know if this is, if this is true in a lot of true crime, but it's more concerned with, um, looking at the various events of, of why this particular person is probably not the, um, probably not the murderer than it is about trying to figure out who the murderer is. But the other thing it's interested in, um, which I think is, is maybe what boosted it a little bit more in my opinion, is that it's interested in the opinions of the people in the village. Like you said, no, I, there's not the kind of intimacy that there is with something like act of killing or look of silence, but there is a little bit of, I do like the fact that anytime we talk to the villagers, you do hear some common refrains they talk a lot about wanting to forget and that like that almost like to the point where forgetting that this happened and kind of moving on their lives is more important than if justice were, was actually achieved or not. Um, mm, because and yeah. in some cases, I think that's perfectly understandable because the filmmakers do actually interview some of the people who uh, were among the people who were poisoned, who survived. I can't even imagine the trauma that they must be living with. So you understand it to a certain extent. And yet at the same time, I think by coming back to some of those similar refrains, you do get the sense that 
maybe this is the way that injustice is perpetuated by people wanting to forget. Maybe this, maybe that's not the right way to do these things. Maybe there is, um, maybe this is about, um, you know, maybe that, that act of forgetting, which I think comes from a very understandable place is actually mm. enabling the kinds of systemic injustices that we're continuing to see to this day. Um, so that to me is really where the film maybe transcends some other, it's not just about the crime. It's, I think it's about something even larger than that. Yeah. And I think what that is, like for me, that's the central theme of the movie is, um, you know, something that is mentioned as well. The, uh, wife in question, who was one of the people who died, uh, of the man who was eventually set to death row, she was from the village. The man was not, he was from outside the village. Yes. So he was, this is a small, like very insular, very rural mountain community, uh, at least amongst the older generation. So he was an outsider uh, to the rest of the townspeople and his children were, oh, half outsider children. So they, it reflect it in that sense, by, uh, by looking at the case from that angle, the film reflects on how, especially within smaller, more insular communities, there is a quickness and a, an instinct to say, oh, well, the outsider must have done it. Therefore, the outsider has done it. That's the answer. And we can all just forget it happened and go on with our lives. And like, that's where the title comes from. The notion that these these older villagers are sleeping in the sense of they don't want to wake up and, and have to look at the truth of or, or have to face the potential truth of one of the people from within the village itself, like one of the you know, in, in air quotes, like insiders could be capable of something, you know, it's much easier to, to, to stay asleep in the sense of assuming, oh, well, it must've been the outsider, uh, because we're all, you know, from this village and we'd never do that. Uh, and that's something that I think is, is very universal that a small close knit community would much rather, would much rather throw the responsibility for something terrible that's happened onto any someone anyone from outside the group so that within the group you can you can stay within that that safe assumption so what would you guys say i mean it seems like that sense of resolution is at the core of this film did you guys feel a sense of resolution by the end oh no the movie does not resolve anything it doesn't make any attempt to it doesn't attempt to resolve the crime it doesn't attempt to definitively state that i I mean, the, the a lot of the characters that the film follows are convinced of the, of the man's innocence, but the film doesn't try to state itself like, obviously, clearly, 100% certain this man did not do it. Um, and there's certainly no resolution on the parts of the, the, the surviving villagers themselves. Like, they are clearly not interested in, uh, you know, definitively once and for all stating, okay, here, we've proven this is the exact course of events that happened, and these are the people responsible. Yeah, I, I guess I got more of a sense of at least the documentary, um, if not if not necessarily proving his innocence, then giving like a lot of, I think, pretty convincing evidence that he was in fact innocent. And I even like looked into some of the aspects of this case and I found a lot of it to be very consistent. Um, but it is it, so but it probably is in some ways even more concerned with the various systems of injustice within the government and within law enforcement and within the court system. Um, so I, I guess in that way, 
um, yeah, it, it definitely has its, it, and I don't know if that's, there's any resolve to that. I think it's just more like, um, prompting us to ask questions and ask if this is, um, you know, mm. a system that's actually just <laughs> by the end of it. So if that, I mean, that's I mean, the only I resolution say, I can think of. <laughs> yeah. I would say there are no, especially given the amount of time that's passed, there are no clear answers to be presented and the film to its strength doesn't try to pretend that there is, or it doesn't try to like create its own sense of resolution to something that, especially at this point is fundamentally unresolvable. Interesting. So this film is currently not available for our audience to watch. Uh, if and when it does become available, is this something that you would recommend? Definitely. I would. Um, I, I mean, it, it I mean, especially if you're into th this very procedural quality to this, um, I would say for like, for my personal taste, I tend to prefer, um, investigatory documentaries that are a little, they're a little more personal. Um, but I, I get the sense like I was I was not surprised to see that both um, both directors have kind of have worked in television before and I guess that to me seems like the proper medium for this I don't know if I would say like you should definitely go out to a theater to see this film um, in terms yeah, no, of like, it doesn't it doesn't have anything to it that I'd be like oh you got to see this on IMAX yeah like it's, it's much more procedural in that way there's a few I do think there's a few interesting shots uh, but for the most part I think this is something that where television would actually probably be the best medium for it um, yeah I don't know it's it's um, it's disturbing in a lot of ways uh, I do think there are resonances with um, you know beyond just Japan I think even within our own country um, yeah, I would recommend it. I would say maybe temper your expectations. It's it's a little more dry than I think um, you you uh, well. It's it's a little more dry than um, other sort of true crime documentaries, at least that I've seen um, uh, around this time. So just bear that in mind. Cool. All right. Well, thanks for talking to us today about all of these interesting films and. It really gave us a wide variety of topics and ideas to to chew over. Um, I hope that our audience gets the chance to see at least some of the shorts, if anything, if that's at least some of what you could find out there. Um, and this seems like the sort of documentary that might pop up on a Netflix in, say, like six to nine months. So, you know, keep an eye on mm, it. I could, I could see that, actually. But, uh, but now I wanted to ask you guys where we could find more of your work on the Internet. So let's start with you, Noah. Well, in addition to my work on Cinema Joes, you can find all my written stuff on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. Also, a new podcast project that Justin and I started up is, as of this recording, is live on the pop break. And it is called... And what is that called? And what is it about? Go, Justin. That's your chance. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, okay. Uh, well, the podcast is We rehearsed is called... this, remember? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> The podcast is called Pod on the Rooftops. It is a podcast dedicated to the British rock band Genesis. Um, it's something that Noah and I had talked about doing for a long time. We were very happy that Luke's brother, Luke's brother, wow, Noah's yes. brother Luke could join <laughs> us for Luke's the podcast. <laughs> you are indeed. Uh, we were very happy that uh, Noah's brother Luke could join us for that. Uh, for the podcast uh, he's someone who I think knows a lot more about music certainly than I do so it's very we feel very happy to have him on um, but yeah if uh, if you're if you love Genesis I would definitely recommend it 
we talk about, uh, we go through every single album. We don't go track by track, but we do talk about certain songs. We talk about uh, songs that we think deserve more attention, maybe some songs that we think are a little bit more overrated. We talk about lyrics and musical moments and all that good stuff. Um, I have a lot of fun, so if I'm having fun listening to it, I hope that you do as well. Um, if you're new to Genesis, we hope that maybe it gives you a starting point. It gives you um, a reason to check out this band that we think is, uh, you know, well, certainly one of, certainly my favorite, um, and uh, you know, among Noah's and, and Luke's favorites as well. So yeah, and that's available at the Breakcast podcast feed over on Apple Podcasts. Um, also over there, you could find two of my podcasts uh, that I host as in my duties as the TV editor for PopBreak.com. Uh, the, those podcasts are TV Break, which releases once a month where we talk. It's me, uh, my editor, Bill Bodkin, and the TV columnist for the site, Josh Cernacki. Uh, we talk about uh, just like the ins and outs of the TV world. We talk about streaming stuff. We spotlight a new TV series every every month um and we talk about the best thing that we've seen that month uh, in addition to that podcast i also host goodbye to all that and that is a podcast all about the season and series finales of tv shows that we're covering on the site and that i personally enjoy uh recent episodes include normal people from hulu uh and also batwoman and insecure uh and love victor which is the love simon uh sequel spin-off series that was uh much better than i expected and it's like very sweet and definitely a show that you should give more than one episode to um in addition to all that you can follow uh me at media thinkings on twitter and letterboxd uh and you can follow our show at cinema Duos on twitter we no longer have a presence on instagram uh because we have decided that we no longer as a show want to be associated with the facebook corporation uh because they are not great actors in the political space uh and just nope. in terms of ethically practicing their <laughs> own uh businesses uh just in not great in for conclusion a long audience time, watch so. the social network <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so uh justin where can we find you outside of um that new podcast that you just uh, talked about so you can find my work at the as well on letterboxd at the cinemaverick great can't wait to see it uh so thanks everybody for tuning in i hope that this was interesting for you guys i know it's kind of hard to listen to stuff that you haven't actually seen yet but maybe this will be an exciting palate cleanser to get you to dive deeper into the world of japanese film so uh with that i'd like to say uh thank you from everyone at cinema joe's and we'll see you next week